Okay, so today we're talking with Sophia Nathanson, author of Critical Theory and Medical Care in America, Changing Doctor-Patient Dynamics. Hi, Sophia. Hello. Thanks for being with us today. And I will just start off by asking you to, if you can tell us a little bit about the article. Great. So the article, basically in a nutshell, just talks about our medical system today and how the doctor-patient relationships that happen within that system are changing by both technological advances and kind of ideological shifts within the patient community. So I'm looking at how two things, the Internet and the use of alternative medicines, is changing that differential in terms of health information between doctor and patient. And I'm suggesting that that could change that doctor-patient dynamic and it could have implications for our healthcare system. Great. So I'm curious about how you became interested in working on this topic or, you know, in particular, um, you apply critical theory to looking at the medical profession. So I'm wondering where that idea came from. That's a great question. Um, Well, I had done a lot of looking at the Internet and health, and also for my master's thesis, I looked at the use of alternative medicine um, correlating with preventive health behavior. So in Mm -hmm. looking at those two sort of trends within the patient population, Mm -hmm. I started to think that critical theory might be a really useful way to look at the ideology of biomedicine Mm. and how potentially the ideology of the patient population may be differed from that dominant model. So Uh critical theory is a really useful framework um, because you kind of start to look deeper and discover ideological principles behind things that just on the face of it are considered neutral, Mm. like the biomedical model. Mm-hmm. So what do you think critical theory helps us understand that medical sociology alone does not? I think with critical theory, um, as we were talking before this interview, mm-hmm. talked about the sociology in medicine versus the sociology of medicine. Mm-hmm. And the sociology in medicine, you take the healthcare system kind of for granted. You look at things like access to health care, inequality within that system. Mm-hmm. And with the sociology of medicine, you're really looking at the medical institution as something that's not taken for granted in that there are ideological principles that underlie it. Mm-hmm. So in that way, critical theory is really necessary to be able to put the medical system in a historical context and in an ideological context. When you do that, you realize that the medical system that we have today came into power not too long ago, about 100 years ago, and it's been the dominant system for just that amount of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before that and potentially in the future, we may have more of a pluralistic form of medicine. Right, and so it seems like critical theory actually could really help um, with understanding the social construction of medicine more broadly. Definitely. Okay, great. Um, So you write about how the relationship between doctor and patient has changed in the last decade or so. So I'm wondering what you think um, the major changes have been. I think probably the most important change has been that the patient now potentially comes to the doctor's office with their own idea of their symptomology Mm -hmm. um, and even their treatment. 
So the Internet has facilitated that. We can now Google health information and kind of diagnose ourselves. We can look at the medication that we want. At the same time, it opens the door to being exposed to other forms of treatment. Mm -hmm. So not only do you come to the doctor's office potentially with an idea of what biomedical treatment you might need, but also what alternative treatment you might want to pursue. Mm-hmm. So this creates a different dynamic between doctor and patient. Um, and again, there's other structural issues that underlie this pattern. For mm-hmm. example, class, race, gender, all, all intersect um, in this type of a dynamic where not everyone is going to challenge what their doctor says, mm-hmm. but they do have more information in the past. And mm-hmm. so that has the potential to really change that conversation between doctor and patient. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, doctors now have a lot more constraints on their time and even on the treatments that they administer. Sure. So all of those sort of dynamics create this, you know, possibly different relationship. Uh-huh. Right. So, and, and you said already, and you say in the piece, that the Internet and alternative medicine are the two key players that you're talking about. But I'm also curious, if, do you see any other factors? Because um, certainly I, what comes to mind for me is sort of direct-to-consumer advertising for, um, you know, all sorts of um, medications and things like that that might, um, you know, be on the other side, sort of advocating for the biomedical model rather than the alternative medicine model. Definitely. Um, yeah, so do you... It's a really interesting, uh, you know, road to go down because mm-hmm. there's definitely even more, uh, like you said, direct advertising of pharmaceuticals, so mm-hmm. there's even more access in that way, mm-hmm. um, and even more penetration into the minds of Americans, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see the, the ad that says, do you feel nervous and, right. you know, at parties where you don't know anyone? You mm-hmm. could have a mental illness and need medication, and you can mm-hmm. buy it online. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, with support groups and uh, this sort of cultural shift towards more holism, mm-hmm. I even tie that to the kind of environmental movement that's happening. Mm-hmm. This larger cultural shift, I think, is also affecting people. Hmm. I'm not sure which one will win out, sure. but I see in the future, I see the biomedical model kind of um, starting to be aware of this trend and kind uh-huh. of absorbing alternative medicine. You might uh-huh. see more sort of integrative medicine uh-huh. programs where the power is still in the biomedical model, but they're more willing to incorporate some of these uh, treatment options that may be more appealing to patients in coping mm. with the disease rather than focusing on curing disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, interesting. So I'm actually going to skip ahead a little bit because what you just said, you know, I was going to ask you if you think that the this sort of um, medical pluralism that you talk about, and we can come back to talking about how that actually comes about, but uh-huh. um, just sort of these multiple ways of, of treating people, if, if that actually has power to combat the biomedical model. So I guess you're saying the biomedical model might actually subsume some of these other perspectives, but do you think it's actually possible that something as powerful as the biomedical model can be challenged? Well, I think that that comes from each individual's experience, and then as sociologists, we see those groups of individuals making those choices, and we start to see patterns, and it becomes a social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, And my research on alternative medicine linked to preventive health behavior, I find that people that incorporate things like yoga, meditation, um, 
having a vegetarian diet mm-hmm. tend to also take better care of themselves overall, hmm. might work out more, tend to drink less alcohol, and this kind of thing. So I think with our public health, preventive health movement that mm-hmm. started in the biomedical model, you know, we see that in the biomedical model, I think that that's where the link is. If mm-hmm. alternative medicines help with coping and help with lifestyle changes that can seriously reduce health care costs, mm-hmm. then you might see something like more alternative medicine being covered in insurance plans mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And that's how we might see it move into um, the dominant model. So it might not necessarily be that one has to outweigh the other, but just that they have to allow each other to flourish, you know, and that the biomedical has to kind of make room for the alternative model to a certain extent. I think that also the biomedical model would benefit from integrating practices that really can supplement biomedical treatment. I mean, looking at, I I study cancer, Mm -hmm. and in looking at the biomedical treatments for cancer, there's a lot of side effects. Um, It's very, very draining and straining in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, both physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. So things like meditation and relaxation, having a good diet, all those things are now coming up in the biomedical literature as, you know, ways to better cope with the biomedical treatment. Sure. I think that integrative is the word that I would use rather than alternative or even Mm -hmm. complementary. I think that an integrative model is the best approach to consider, you know, the idea of the whole person. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's just go back for a minute. So um, you've kind of alluded to this already, but if you had to kind of summarize it, why do you think it's so important for sociology to, to study these changes that are taking place in the relationship between doctor and patient? Well, I think that particularly during this time where there's a lot of strain on our healthcare system, sociologists can really add to the conversation by looking at these structural and cultural factors in both disease and in healing. Mm. So although we're talking about kind of these interactions that kind of ignore underlying, uh, you know, structural poverty that Mm -hmm. I personally believe is the root of a lot of our, you know, medical problems in this country. Sure, yeah. If you go, you know, beyond this, it's really important to understand these patterns and trends because our system needs to adapt to this. And, um, again, salient right now, we've gone through the epidemiological transition. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, suffering from these diseases where we really start to see the limits of biomedicine. Uh So as sociologists, understanding what are healing environments, what is a healing, uh, you know, medical structure, what are things that can help people cope with illness, Mm -hmm. those things become more important um, during a time where a lot of our um, diseases that are our greatest problems, uh, we start to see some limits in how far biomedicine can go. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, this brings up another issue of quality of life, which sure. you see that in the clinical literature all the time now, and I think that points to another kind of sociological shift of you know, less about killing the pain and avoiding death and more about uh, coping with illness and also even drawing meaning from it and incorporating that into our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it seems like critical theory could really help us understand this process as well, and especially sort of getting at the the meaning issues 
Um, right. So that's really interesting. Um, so what do you think uh, the increased influence of patients' ideas in their own treatment can potentially offer the field of medicine? I think that the place where patient ideas are the most maybe beneficial mm-hmm. is the, the coping aspect of illness. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, if, if you have somebody that's diagnosed with a brain tumor and they have, you know, these different options and they don't have very much longer to live or mm-hmm. um, this and that, they need, the patient needs to feel like they have options to, to cope and I think that where biomedicine is limited is how the illness is integrated into your life and some of the more psychosocial aspects of illness. Mm-hmm. So I think the patient can bring to the table that desire for quality of life mm-hmm. um, over just the next biomedical treatment. I read in the paper a couple of months ago, new cancer treatment, $200,000, extends your life five to six months. I mean, that's the perfect example of where, you know, critical theory can look at that ideological example of quality versus quantity. Mm-hmm. And so what the patient brings is potentially the view that they want quality of life, they want access to treatments that are going to improve their quality of life mm-hmm. rather than just trying to extend their life as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's not to say certain alternative medicines um, can't extend your life and uh, vice versa, but there is something in, in the literature that points to um, this idea of patient empowerment and getting something, you know, in terms of quality of life mm-hmm. out of the illness with mm-hmm. alternative medicines. Mm-hmm. And I'm biased. My dad had a brain tumor and he mm-hmm. did biomedicine and alternative medicine. And, you know, I saw what happened there. So mm-hmm. that's my underlying sort of, you know, sure, well, where I think passion comes from. <laughs> right. We all get into our various fields because of some experience. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's how we become interested in these things. But mm-hmm. um, I, do, I do think that... Um, you know, one thing that I'm really fascinated about that you allude to in the paper and that you're certainly alluding to now um, just in my own work is what this, you know, patient empowerment, the opportunity to suggest alternative medicine, et cetera, actually changes about the role of the physician in treatment. Um, so I'm wondering what you think that does to sort of the power of the doctor or the expertise of the doctor. Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and I'll answer that by reflecting on the literature that I've read mm-hmm. on ideology behind both you know, holistic or alternative medicine mm-hmm. versus biomedicine. Um, and again, it's, it's hard to group all alternative sure. medicine under one umbrella, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, the literature shows that certain themes emerge in alternative medicine. One of those themes is patient responsibility, things mm-hmm. like self-care. Um, So a lot of the alternative medicines are really lifestyle practices that you do yourself, and it's about incorporating those into a lifestyle of paying attention to yourself and your body and and healing yourself. Um, And I think that we're all sort of socialized away from that and into this dependency model where we get sick and we go to the doctor. Uh And we don't have a lot of basic knowledge on our bodies and the mind-body connection and how our emotions are going to affect our bodies, how we personally are going to react to medication. Um, There's less of that awareness on the the physical and psychological level. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Um, so I think that where the doctor's role changes is in alternative medicine, the, you know, the doctor, their role is more to help the patient develop a lifestyle that is going to keep them healthy and live long. Mm. Um, the doctor's role is, is uh, more about providing those treatments for the patient, mm-hmm. um, less about really training the patient up to engage in self-care beyond their treatment. Right. Um, So alternative medicine has more of a lifestyle approach, whereas biomedicine has more of a, you know, they're still going to train up the patient to take care of themselves, but it revolves more around treatment than in, you know, your day-to-day practices that are going to help avoid disease. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, most of the diseases that are our top killers have a lifestyle component. And right. I, you know, I have to throw in that not everybody has the option to develop a healthy lifestyle. If you're course, in yeah. absolute pro- poverty, if you ha- are live in a violent neighborhood where you can't work out, you know, mm-hmm. those issues are still there. But I think there's a really significant difference between the role of a biomedical doctor and maybe a holistic healer, and that has to do with the amount of responsibility um, that comes on the side of the patient. Hmm. That's really interesting and brings up all sorts of issues about agency and and just, you know, power in the medical system in general. So mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. So I guess I'd just like to, you know, sort of finish up by asking you where you plan to go with this research in the future or how you see yourself um, expanding on this. Right. Well, I'm getting into some research on religion, spirituality, alternative medicine, and cancer. And primarily I'm looking at how both religious practices and more potentially secular spiritual practices like meditation help coping with cancer. Uh-huh. So these issues are very much intertwined with that research um, as you know, as I start to look at patterns and how different practices can, can help the subjective quality of life of cancer mm-hmm. survivors, but also their longevity. So these kind of um, more mental aspects of disease, um, the meaning that you find in it, how you're able to incorporate it into your lifestyle, what the role of some of those facets of life, you know, religion and spirituality, how they actually impact longevity. Um, And I think one of the other interesting things that medical sociologists can begin doing is starting to incorporate some of that biomedical literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been looking at a lot of psychoneuroimmunological literature, Uh looking at how biomedicine can provide what I feel could be the key pathway between spiritual practices and longevity. Um, You know, what's actually physiologically happening in your body when you meditate, when you pray. And there's some great research that's already out there about, you know, meditation and and Uh the physiological effects. So I think that, um, you know, medical sociologists, rather than just stay in their, you know, field of sociology, I think that some of these pathways between psychosocial aspects of illness and clinical outcomes can be sort of complemented by looking at some of that biomedical research. Mm-hmm. So that's my future direction. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a, a great point to end on. And um, so, again, the article is Critical Theory and Medical Care in America, Changing Doctor-Patient Dynamics. And thank you, Sophia. Thank you very much. Sure.